Sunday, January 13th. Chase Dost on Journey to Wholeness. Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see so many gathered in this warm, wonderful place. And um, I have the honor of introducing our speaker this morning, Chase Dost, who um, I guess I've known since your birth. Um, <laughs> and uh, Chase grew up in our church and was baptized here and um, has returned to become a member in discernment, and our church is sponsoring Chase in that walk toward ordination. So um, it's always been great to see members from our church walk toward ordination, um, but I've had the opportunity since uh, being the most recently ordained to walk especially close with Chase during uh, his uh, move through the member and discernment process. For those of you that are not familiar with that process, when one considers ordination in ministry, they go to the United Church of Christ. For us, it's the Chicago Metropolitan Association, which is our local ordaining board, if you will. And you apply first to become what they call a member in discernment. And so even though you're going through seminary, the denomination does not assume that you will be ordained. And so it's um, maybe a little stressful at first to think about uh, investing three years yeah. in, in <laughs> seminary and then thinking, huh, what if they decide at the end? But um, we have no doubt about Chase because I've had the opportunity to attend his um, group meetings that they have with the denomination as he has walked toward this path. And you'll hear probably a little bit more maybe about that. Um, but we have a small group of our members who are Chase's advisory group and have walked with him through this path as well. And I know some of those folks are here this morning. Um, but Chase is here to share his journey and will actually graduate in May and will then move even closer toward ordination. And we will be there all the way with him. And so um, I'm delighted to introduce Chase Dost and have him share his story with you this morning. So welcome home. Right on time, it fell asleep. All right. Um, so, yeah, good morning. Uh, so I'll just give a little bit more background information before I get started. Uh, I grew up in Western Springs, actually, in Indian Head Park specifically. Uh, and I attended the College of William and Mary in Virginia, where I graduated in 2016 with a bachelor's in uh, religious studies and a minor in Judaic studies. So that Judaic studies piece is actually gonna come into play later as I'm talking about some kind of trans-affirming uh, theology and traditions within Judaism and Christianity later. Uh, and I, I've continued that kind of uh, passion to study Judaism uh, in seminary where I'm currently earning the uh, very new Jewish Christian Studies certificate that uh, was formed in the hopes of helping pastors uh, foster productive interfaith relationships with our Jewish neighbors, as well as combat uh, anti-Semitism within the church. So that's something that I am very passionate about, so you'll definitely be hearing some interesting trans-Jewish stuff in this talk. Uh, but yeah, so I'll go ahead and get started, and I just wanna give that a little nudge so it stays awake. Uh, so my name is Chase Dost. Many of you may have known me for many years before now by a different name. But now I go by Chase, and I'd like to talk to you this morning about how I got here. So 
As Meredith said, I am a third year seminarian at Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. I'm earning a Master of Divinity, which is a very weird, intimidating sounding degree. And I hope to be ordained in the United Church of Christ. And I am also trans. So welcome to this talk, which I have titled Finding Wholeness as a Trans Pastor. Before I get to the wholeness part, I think it's important to give some other background. So again, I am Chase. Uh, this is me looking very pastoral, officiating my very first wedding this summer. Now, as I already said, I'm not yet ordained. I only hope to be ordained. I did not get like an online ordination or become a notary public or anything uh, in order to do this. My sister and brother-in-law, who are the two lovely people in this picture, and you may notice Vince Safali over in the corner, uh, <laughs> actually got married about uh, six months before this picture was taken because my brother-in-law is French and they wanted to get started on the green card process. So the legal marriage happened uh, about six months before, and this was the wedding. Uh, so the point is, I did the ceremony, which was really cool, but I wasn't ordained. So, you know, no rule breaking in this ordination process happened. Uh, but anyway, I like to, this is currently my profile picture on Facebook. It's my pastor picture uh, because I'm wearing a collar. I think I look very official. So, uh, so I'm a pastor, hopeful pastor, and I am also transgender. So. First of all, what does being trans mean? I just want to give a brief introduction to that because I think many people have a basic idea, but maybe not the specifics. So trans, which is what I usually say is short for transgender, which means that my gender identity does not match the gender that I was assigned at birth. So uh, I'll explain a little more. Uh, I was assigned female at birth. My parents gave me a feminine name and raised me as their daughter. For a very long time, the Dosts were a family of two daughters, which means my mom has a bunch of stuff uh, around the house themed around that. Like she has a collection of beautifully painted plates, all with two little brunette girls on them. Uh, and the problem with all of this, of course, is that they never had two daughters uh, because I've always been a son, because I've always been trans. I just didn't always know it. And I'll be getting into more of that later. So there's a common narrative among trans people that, that we were born in the wrong body, we're born the wrong gender. And of course, this whole talk, I wanna make it very clear, I am speaking from my own experience and that's the only trans experience that I am capable of speaking from uh, because there are multiple ways of understanding gender. And so this, this narrative of feeling that you were born in the wrong body or knowing from a very young age is very true for many people. It just wasn't true for me. And so this, this narrative, being born in the wrong body, it, it does reflect some trans people's experiences, but I think it's also a helpful way that we explain our reality as trans people because it can be a very difficult thing to understand for people who are not trans. It's easier to say, I was born the wrong gender than to say, I've always been my gender, it's just the rest of the world that misunderstood that. But for better or for worse, uh, because of the way our society operates, which makes sense, when children are born, we categorize them as male or female. Now, there are people who like to say there are only two genders, uh, but that's wrong for several reasons. Socially, there are more than two genders because non-binary people exist. Scientifically, there are more than two biological sexes because intersex people exist. I'll explain more about non-binary people soon, but intersex basically refers to a variety of 
biological conditions that roughly one in 2,000 children are born with. That means their reproductive organs are a mix of male and female. Most of the time, correcting these conditions is not medically necessary for the health of the child, uh, but because most parents are deeply uncomfortable with the idea of raising a child whose gender is ambiguous, most intersex babies have their gender chosen for them soon after their birth and have surgeries and other treatments, sometimes for years afterward, until their gender is satisfactorily corrected. If you can't tell from how I'm talking about this, I think it's extreme to put infants through this. There's always the chance you'll choose the wrong gender for your child, and as I'll say later, being trans really isn't easy, and I, I wouldn't choose it for anyone. But more importantly, it's your child's body, and these invasive surgeries should be their decision once they're old enough to make that. Anyway, I wasn't born a girl. The doctor said I was a girl, and spoiler, the doctor got it wrong. I have not become a man, I always was a man. Like this comic by a trans woman says, the only difference with cisgender people is that they agree with the gender they were assigned at birth. And a note on cisgender. Being cis means you agree with whatever gender you were assigned at birth. Cis and trans are just Latin prefixes. Cis means on the same side of, and trans means on the other side of, or another side. So if you are the gender you were assigned at birth, then congratulations, you are cisgender. Since we're getting into trans terminology, I thought I would take a brief moment to clarify two points. Uh, at no point thus far have I said I identify as a man. Some trans people will say they identify as their gender, but again, I think this is often a way that we explain our experiences to cis people. Really, we are our gender. Trans men are men and trans women are women. Trans and cis are just adjectives. Cis people would never say they identify as their genders, and I don't think it's necessary for trans people to either. Similarly, my pronouns are not preferred. My pronouns are he, him, his, not because I like it, although I do, but because they're the correct pronouns for men, and I am a man. So if you ever find yourself in the position where you're wondering what someone's pronouns are or what their gender is, please don't ask, what are your preferred pronouns? Just ask, what are your pronouns? Also, if you can, ask them privately because there's always the chance that if they are trans, they might not be open about it to everyone and you could be putting them at risk by outing them if you ask in public. But anyway, a key characteristic of being trans is gender dysphoria. The medicalization of trans people is a problem and leads to a lot of gatekeeping that prevents people from seeking the resources we need to transition. But whether they experience body dysphoria or social dysphoria or like, I get dysphoric about my height sometimes because even all of the actors who literally played hobbits in The Lord of the Rings are taller than me. And hobbits are canonically like two to three feet tall. But anyway. There are many kinds of dysphoria, and virtually all trans people experience at least one kind of dysphoria. And dysphoria is something that can be diagnosed. So you need at least two of the following, which is from the most recent DSM, uh, to receive a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Uh, a strong desire to be of a gender other than one's assigned gender. A strong desire to be treated as a gender other than one's assigned gender. 
a significant incongruence between one's experienced or expressed gender and one's sexual characteristics, a strong desire for the sexual characteristics of a gender other than one's assigned gender, a strong desire to be rid of one's sexual characteristics due to incongruence with one's experience or expressed gender, and a strong conviction that one has the typical reactions and feelings of a gender other than one's assigned gender. So those are all, like a lot of those are very similar, but so you need two of those. So before I could get top surgery in 2017, I needed to go through gender therapy to receive a formal diagnosis of gender dysphoria. I also needed a letter from my therapist before a surgeon would agree to give me top surgery. Normally, letters are also required to begin hormone replacement therapy, which is basically what it sounds. And in my case, I take testosterone once a week. However, since I had already undergone gender therapy and just didn't request a letter for hormones at the time, I went the informed consent route at a Planned Parenthood. Informed consent is becoming more and more common around the country, which is great because, again, gatekeeping is an issue that keeps trans people from treatment that helps to alleviate our dysphoria. Before I started hormones, my voice was a lot higher. Uh, but for all of you who have gone through male puberty before, or for those of you who have witnessed uh, male puberty secondhand, testosterone makes your voice lower. I have elected to put myself through a second puberty, <laughs> which I recognize is extreme. Maybe that'll give you an idea of how bad dysphoria can be. Because who would willingly put themselves through puberty a second time? Of course. Maybe I'm biased because for me, puberty the first time around was awful because my body was doing things I did not want it to be doing. And I honestly understood it because my public school education had, you know, handled that. But second puberty is basically correcting a lot of the problems that the first one covered. Anyway, uh, I'm showing you this comic because voice dysphoria is something that I struggled with before starting hormones. Now, my voice still sometimes doesn't pass, which is a word in the trans community, pass to describe passing as your gender to people around you. The concept of passing is admittedly problematic because it often involves playing into gender stereotypes, uh, but still, I like it when I pass, however rarely that is. Uh, most of the time on the phone, people do read me as male because of my voice. Uh, my voice still has some feminine characteristics to it, mostly my speech patterns, but that's a little harder to change because I've been speaking for about 24 years, so with time. Uh, but anyway, I'm pleased with the changes to my voice so far. There was even a brief window of time this summer when my voice was starting to lower, but I still retained my higher singing range, and I could sing both Christine and the Phantom's parts in the Phantom <laughs> of the Opera, and that was really cool. <laughs> it's always been a dream of mine to be able to sing both of those voice parts, so like, did that. My higher range is mostly gone now, except for like a really high falsetto that I don't really understand. But other than that, I'm officially a bass, which is a vocal part my field ed church in Princeton desperately needed in their choir, so that worked out for everyone. But anyway, gender is complicated. Here is a fancy diagram that a lot of people use to explain it. It also includes sexuality, although sexuality and gender are two different things, and trans people can be gay or bi or straight or anything, really. So, there's gender identity, which is you know, who you are at your core, in your mind, your identity. And as I'll get into soon when I talk about non-binary identities, it's not as simple as 
male or female. There's a range of womanness and manness, maleness and femaleness. And there's a range of those things like masculinity and femininity for gender expression and biological sex too. Uh, now, gender expression is different from gender identity because gender expression is how you present yourself to the world. So you can be a feminine man or a masculine woman, and that doesn't change that you're a man or a woman. Now, it, it's not a perfect example, but like say when I was writing this, I was trying to think of like pop culture things, and I kept thinking of RuPaul's Drag Race, even though like I haven't watched that ever. But anyway, so you know, drag queens, some do identify as, as trans women, so like they are women, uh, because the whole identify thing, uh, not to say that. Uh, but many are cis men who choose to present very femininely sometimes, performing womanhood. Uh, but having a different gender expression to your gender identity isn't just a thing that happens in drag, obviously. You know, you can be a, a tomboy or something like that. that. That's probably things that more people are familiar with than not RuPaul's Drag Race, anyway. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, we, we've touched upon uh, intersex people, which would be you know, somewhere mixed on this spectrum. Uh, and I'm not really talking about sexuality today, but yeah, this is the gender-bred person. Uh, and again, there are people who love to say that there are only two genders, and these are often the same people who will make fun of non-binary identities with the very original joke like, I identify as an attack helicopter which is absolutely ridiculous because non-binary people are not claiming to identify as inanimate objects. They're people who have a gender identity that is beyond the traditional male-female binary, and that's it, and they deserve respect. Now, this is a comic by a friend of mine who is non-binary and uses E, M, Air pronouns. Air name is Maya, as he says in this comic. E is actually publishing a whole graphic novel on Air experience as a non-binary individual. E-M-Air is an example of a neo-pronoun. Some non-binary people like the idea of inventing new pronouns for English and other languages because the ones we currently have, he, him, his, she, her, hers, they, them, theirs, don't really fit. Many languages already have gender-neutral pronouns built into the language, and other non-binary people are perfectly happy in English using the singular they. Now, Many people dislike this because they think it's grammatically incorrect. Uh, my father is one of those people. But really, the singular they has been in use in English since at least the time of Shakespeare. And we already use it all the time without really realizing it. For example, if you're waiting at a restaurant and you haven't met your server yet, you might say, where are they? You're not implying you think your server is more than one person. You just don't know their gender yet, and so you're using they. In academic papers, I've used they to refer to one person for years because using he implies that male is the default, which I don't want to imply, and writing he or she over and over again gets exhausting really fast. Anyway, even if I did find the singular they grammatically upsetting, I would still use it for people who use they, them pronouns because I believe it's important to use the terms people use to describe themselves. For those of us who aren't cisgender, self-identification is very important because we've spent most of our lives having the wrong gender imposed upon us. Even if it's hard, it's worth it because it affirms a key part of someone's identity that most of the world, whether intentionally or not, too often denies. Now, 
I warned you that this was going to come up. So if you'll indulge me, I want to take a few moments to talk about trans Jewish things. So as I said, I was a Judaic studies minor in uh, the College of William and Mary. And in one of my introductory classes for the minor, uh, my professor assigned a bunch of articles from the spring 2002 issue of Lilith, with it, which is a Jewish feminist publication. The issue focused on trans Jews, which here, obviously, the, these are the trans pride uh, colors from the flag that I showed earlier, where I didn't really explain how the colors work. The blue is obviously meant to represent maleness, the pink for femaleness, and the white is there for uh, non-binary genders. So this is uh, a kippah, uh, also called a yarmulke, uh, in the trans pride colors. Uh, so the issue of Lilith that we were assigned focused on trans Jews. There were articles about adult Jews having second benai mitzvah as their true genders, uh, about legal understandings of gender under the Mosaic law, and Hebrew poetry. So we're actually going to start with Hebrew poetry. So Genesis uh, 1.27 is often cited as proof that God creates us as we are, as only two genders that cannot be changed by transition or anything. And it looks pretty straightforward, doesn't it? It's, and God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Pretty straightforward. But what we lose in the translation from Hebrew to English, or really Hebrew to any other language, is that the first chapter of Genesis is poetry. And in this passage in particular, we see a key feature of Hebrew poetry called merism. Merism is, in short, naming two different things to signify a whole, to signify a spectrum of things. The most commonly occurring example is probably night and day. With merism, night and day really means night and day and dusk and dawn and midnight and noon and 325 in the afternoon and every single possible time and combination of times therein. So in a similar way, male and female here can easily be read poetically to mean male and female and cisgender and transgender and intersex and non-binary and all possible combinations within and beyond the gender spectrum. Now, this is definitely not what the author of Genesis had in mind, because we simply have a different understanding of gender and biological sex in the 21st century. However, if you believe that God inspired the author of Genesis 1, perhaps nudging the author to craft poetry instead of prose, to use merism instead of some other poetic device. I think God included this gender expansive reading all those years ago so that we might understand these ancient words in a new way today. And of course, it wasn't just recently that people started interpreting scripture in gender expansive ways either. All the way back when the Talmud was being written, which is both an extensive commentary on the law of Moses and a legal text in its own right, rabbis were debating the issue of gender. The Talmud was first written down in the fifth century, although these questions were being discussed long before via oral tradition. Gender is important when thinking about the law because some commandments are required of everyone, some are only required of men, some are only required of women. 
This is especially relevant uh, in commandments that require people to go to Jerusalem multiple times a year for certain holy days and festivals. When you need women to stay home to care for the children and run the household, you have to change what's required. So men are bound to more commandments than women. An example given in the Talmud when discussing gender categories uh, is specifically that only a man can blow the shofar, uh, which is blown at, at liturgically significant times in the Jewish year, like at Rosh Hashanah. So when you have people who exist between genders on a biological level who are intersex, you need to figure out what commandments apply to them because these are divinely given commandments. It is, it's part of the, the covenant between Israel and God that these commandments be fulfilled. And so you gotta figure out what's required of everybody. So the Talmud has a total of seven gender categories listed. And of course, in the Talmud, as well as in Midrash, in the Mishnah, which is the, the oral Torah, uh, you have different rabbis who vehemently disagree with each other on things. And this is all totally fine. Uh, it, it's, it's beautiful. In the Talmud, you'll have rabbis fiercely debating each other, and then they'll just say, let it stand and move on to the next question. And they're not troubled with finding one answer, uh, because it is a holy act just wrestling with the question. So when I say there are seven categories, there's like one rabbi who says seven categories, and then some people will say four, some people will say two, some people will say five, it you know continues. But the highest amount listed is seven. So to continue with the shofar example, there are some intersex individuals who would be able to blow the shofar for themselves, but not for others, and some individuals who wouldn't be able to blow the shofar for anyone, and other rules for other individuals. But the point of all this is that thinking critically about gender from a religious perspective is not new or recent by any stretch within the Jewish and Christian tradition. And there are many ways we can understand non-binary genders religiously and theologically. But anyway, back to me. <clears throat> I am a trans pastor. I've always been trans, and maybe I've always been headed for the ministry too, as these pictures will show you. So. I'm not sure how old I am in these pictures, but what I do know is my sister had some project for school and had to recreate famous paintings uh, and chose to dress me up as a nun in prayer. And then more than a decade later, one of my friends saw these and made it into a meme. So that's great. But the point is, trans pastor. So how did I get here? I was raised the way my parents thought a little girl should be raised. Now, neither of my parents are super into gender stereotypes. My mom demanded in 1980 when they got married that to obey be taken out of their vows because she and my father were to be equal partners, which he was totally happy with. My dad told my sister and I growing up throughout our childhoods that we could do anything a boy could do. And apparently, I took that a little more literally <laughs> than my sister because if boys got to be boys, then so did I. Now, some trans people say they always knew uh, that they were trans from the time they were toddlers, but that wasn't true for me. I was mostly fine until puberty. My friends were mostly boys, and although my mom always tried to get me in dresses, the minute I was allowed to dress myself, I'd be in the baggiest jeans I could find and probably a dinosaur-themed t-shirt because I was really into Jurassic Park as a child. I played with dolls, but I also played with cars. <laughs> My parents just kind of 
let me exist as myself for the most part. And so things were pretty okay, dysphoria-wise. I saw myself as basically the same as all the other little boys around me. Then puberty came and everything changed. Like I said earlier, my body was doing things I, I understood because my public school education, thanks to Highlands, was, you know, prepared me adequately, but I, I hated everything. I wanted to be a boy. And that's the first time that I remember consciously wishing I could be a boy around age nine or 10. And the thing is, I assumed every little girl wanted to be a boy. Even as I got older and all the girls around me learned how to do makeup and their hair and strangely seemed to delight in femininity, I remained convinced that it was all an act, that everyone would be a boy if they could, and I was just unlucky by birth. I think the first time I heard about trans people was when I was around 15, and I heard the narrative that so many people hear that you knew when you were three years old. And I didn't know when I was that young. I didn't even know if I was a boy then, I just knew I desperately wanted to be one. Well, as I would learn much, much later, wanting to be a boy is a symptom of being a boy. Surprise, all 3.5 billion women in the world do not secretly wish they were men. I know, it shocked me too. So when I first learned what trans men were, you know what I did? I wished I was trans. Spoiler, cis people don't wish they were trans. And now that I actually know I'm trans, I don't want to be trans either. It's really, really hard. There's so much paperwork going into legally changing your documents. There's hoping your healthcare co covers transition-related costs and getting surgeries and second puberty being trans often sucks, but it is much better than not transitioning. And so when I learned what being trans meant at 15, that it was possible to change genders for the first time in my life, I didn't actually want to be trans. I just wanted the ability to be who I'd always desperately wanted to be. So for the next, oh, four years, I watched trans men go through their transitions on YouTube, thinking I would never actually get to have any of that because whoops, I wasn't trans. Until the realization hit, finally, that wanting to be a man is a symptom of being a man. So, great. I knew I was trans. I still didn't come out to anyone for a year until I admitted to my best friend at age 20 that I maybe wasn't completely cis. Like, I was definitely mostly cis, but just not completely. I cut off my hair for the first time and experimented with wearing more masculine clothes and loved it. But I was scared of being trans, so I grew my hair back out and spent most of my time studying abroad in New Zealand watching YouTube videos because Netflix didn't work there. Not about trans men, but about makeup and hairstyles and fashion and doing my best to internalize all of that. Now, this was an old tactic from high school. At the start of every school year, I'd go shopping with my mom and sister for new clothes. And every year, I'd end up crying in the dressing room because although the clothes looked really nice in the mirror, everything still felt wrong. But we'd buy the clothes anyway, and for the first month of school, I would dress up every day and get a lot of compliments. 
and then I'd always end up back in jeans and a sweatshirt. Now, I actually enjoy shopping, uh, though I still wear sweatshirts a lot because they're very comfortable. But, you know, I, I tried to be feminine a lot, even though women don't have to be feminine at all. But I thought if I just figured out how to do femininity right, everything would click and I would stop feeling so awful all the time. Anyway, I returned from New Zealand and could paint my nails really well and I knew what was good makeup and what wasn't and I could even braid my hair kind of uh, and people complimented me. So I thought I was doing it right. But I missed the short hair and I missed the more masculine clothes. And although it was satisfying finally understanding how makeup worked, I didn't like it either. I cut my hair off again about a year later and finally started letting myself dress more masculine. This was senior spring at William and Mary. And my best friend who I told three years ago that I might maybe not be completely cis, remarked on how comfortable I seemed. And I was. And I told her that I wasn't cis, but I definitely wasn't trans either. Even though that doesn't really make sense. I wore a dress at graduation and hated it. And that means I hate looking at photos where I'm not wearing my robe from graduation. But it, it's, it's honestly weird to look at any pictures of me, really, from about age 12 to 23, because I don't really recognize myself in them. I know logically that it's me in the pictures, but I don't connect with my old self because I'm so different now. It's hard looking at myself smiling and seeming happy and knowing that I wasn't happy at all, and that's why there aren't really any pictures from that time in this slideshow. But I'm still not to the end of the story yet. So how did I get from here to here? The first picture is the very first time I preached in spring 2014, which is a really good story. So I was living, I was a sophomore at William and Mary, and I was living in my campus ministry house, and the campus minister walks in and goes, hey Chase, what are you doing on March 30th? And that was a Sunday, so I was like, nothing, Max. And he was like, you're preaching in Mob Jack, Virginia. I'm like, okay. So I did, and the whole campus ministry all came out to see me preach, and my sister drove down from DC, and it was great. Uh, so at this point, I knew I wasn't cis, and that I was probably trans, and I have my very first short haircut, which is a very unfortunate Bieber-esque pixie cut, but that's, <laughs> its own thing, but I'm wearing a dress and makeup and I'm fully presenting as a woman. The second picture is this fall at Princeton right after I preached at my senior chapel service. I'm wearing a men's jacket that's actually tailored to me. I have a much better haircut, or at least I think so, and I'm really happy. I was excited in the first picture and happy to be preaching for the first time, but I wasn't happy about who I was. In the second picture, I'm happy about who I'm becoming. I'm still so early on in my transition and I'm still hoping for a lot of changes, like I would love to rock a full beard someday. <laughs> but I'm getting there. And that's really incredible when I think about how recent this whole thing has been. So the turning point was in the same place you've just seen from my senior chapel service, Miller Chapel at Princeton. So. You're about to be made privy to some seminary denominational gossip. 
but really you might already have known about this because a lot of people wrote about this when it was happening. So in April of my first year at Princeton, the seminary announced uh, the chosen recipient for a certain theological award. The details aren't super important, but the whole controversy is on our Wikipedia page if you want to know the details. So uh, the public theologian who was selected had a strong track record, to say the least, for being against female ordination, against LGBTQ inclusivity in the church, and to top it off, had a history of gentrifying the neighborhoods that he church planted in. So for many reasons, a large part of the seminary community, both current students, professors, and alumni, didn't want this person to get the award because he was a prominent figure in his denomination who had spent his career advocating for these harmful issues. We didn't think it was appropriate for him to receive the $10,000 award when he didn't think half of the students at the seminary deserved to be there. At the same time, both Princeton's denomination and the recipient's denomination were privately requesting the award also uh, not be given due to doctrinal differences between the denominations. So there was a lot going on. And we didn't know about the whole denominational thing until much later. But most of the media coverage boiled the issue down to free speech and coddled students wanting to stay in their safe spaces. It wasn't a fun couple of weeks while this was all going down. Now, Princeton eventually decided to not give the financial part of the award, but still invited the theologian to give the keynote speech associated with the award, which is honestly probably the best compromise that could have been struck given the intense debate coming from both sides. Three groups on campus organized what we called a preach-in to occur the hour before this speech so that people could attend both events and hear both sides and decide for themselves what they thought. The three groups represented the three issues that had arisen from this person's selection. The Women's Center to protest the opposition to female ordination, BGLAS, the LGBTQ organization to protest the unaffirming theology, and the Association of Black Seminarians to protest the history of gentrification in neighborhoods of color. Just gonna make sure this stays awake. The preaching consisted of six individuals sharing brief sermons basically about why they are called to ministry and have a place in the church, despite the theological opinions of the keynote speaker. I didn't preach at this event. I was only in my first year, obviously, and didn't even put my name in the running because I found the prospect of preaching at an event that meant so much to so many people way too intimidating. But I was a student leader of BGLAS, so of course I attended. One of my friends, who is a non-binary trans person, preached a sermon on why queer and trans people have a place in the church. In retrospect, their sermon was really queer and trans theology 101. It was stuff that I had heard before, good, solid arguments, but I knew them already. And yet, I was meant to hear a new word that day. Because as I listened to my friend preach a, theolog a theological, excuse me, argument that I had long been on board with, I had an experience that is hard to describe. The mainline Protestant church isn't very comfortable with more charismatic forms of Christianity, and maybe even more so the progressive mainline church. We like to be rational, or at least I do. We like to show how our faith is relevant today in the age of science. 
talking about miracles or spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues or having visions is difficult for us, or again, at least it is for me. But something did happen that day at the preaching. And honestly, it's not something I often share anymore because the memory of it is so precious to me. But the important thing is, I was convinced in that moment that God affirmed my trans identity and wanted me to thrive as the person God made me to be, which included me being trans. So I started coming out to friends. I came out to my parents, which was scary and it took a while for them to fully understand, but they've long since gotten on board and I never doubted that they would get there eventually. I told my sister and brother-in-law, who was then her boyfriend, and it turned out he had trans friends, so he even helped my sister in her understanding. I came out to my mentors, my pastors, my professors, my discernment committee here at First Congo. Each time was scary, but I've been blessed with wonderful people in my life who only want to see me living my fullest life. And no matter how scary telling someone or several someones was, I've never really had to wonder whether they would accept me. It was just kind of a given. And that's not the case for many, if not most, trans people. It's been a huge gift. I'm still a long ways from being able to walk around in the world and have everyone know I'm a man. I still get misgendered all the time, though it's happening less and less as time goes on. But overall, I've been extremely fortunate in my experience as a trans person. There's a lot about being trans that is hard and not pleasant. And most days, if I could wake up a cis man, that would be great. Honestly, all days, that would be great. But since that's very, very unlikely to happen, but through God, all things are possible, <laughs> I'm finding peace within my trans identity. I am happier with who I am now than I've ever been. I'm still not where I want to be, but life is long and I'll get there. And there are some things I do like about being trans. Once this summer when I did CPE or clinical pastoral education, which is a chaplaincy internship that the UCC requires for ordination, a patient told me her best friend from growing up who she hadn't seen in 10 years just came out to her as a trans man. And she was seeing him soon, and she wanted to understand more because she wanted to love and accept him and show him how much she loved and accepted him. I didn't tell this woman that I was trans, because, but because I was trans, I was able to help her in a way that another chaplain couldn't. I could point her to online resources and answer the questions that I could, but especially online resources and especially YouTube videos because when I walked in, she was watching a YouTube video, so I knew that was a good thing to do. In another visit, it made sense to disclose my gender identity. I spoke with a young non-binary person in the behavioral health unit who was struggling badly with dysphoria. They also told me how they wanted to be religious and came from a religious family but didn't know if God would accept them. I told them some sort of trans-affirming theology 101 and shared that I was a trans pastor. That conversation was deeply meaningful to both of us because we shared something very important in common, actually two things, 
gender identity, and faith. At my current field ed church, someone in the congregation has a young trans son in high school. She loves and accepts him, but was afraid for his future. She wanted to know that he could still succeed in life, that having to deal with gender on top of all of life's struggles would make things too hard. But she's lost a lot of that fear since I've come to intern for the church because she sees a young trans adult living a full life and still loving God on top of all of it. I'm often one of the first open trans people that other people meet, and that can lead to a lot of really interesting conversations. People have a lot of questions, and honestly, some questions really aren't appropriate, and Google is a great resource for those. <laughs> but I don't mind answering most questions. I'm happy to be a resource because I'm confident in who I am, and I'm grateful when people want to improve themselves by learning more about the world. It's all too easy to reject things we don't understand and people who are different from us. But God calls us away from what's easy. It's easier to not bother learning all the terms around what being trans is. And it would also be a lot easier to just have been born cis. And yet, trans people exist, and I happen to be trans, so we're here, we're doing this, and we might as well love and accept and respect and affirm one another as best as we can. I guess that's what I hope to do as a trans pastor, help people to love and affirm each other as best as we can. It's what I've always hoped to do as a pastor because we all need love and we all need to be affirmed as the beloved children of God. I knew this was gonna happen at some point, just, there we go. You know, I can't have this picture fall off the screen because it's like, I'm wearing a collar. Like, I can't get over this. It was so cool. It was also like 96 degrees and really humid. It was, this was like July in Florida. It was, but yeah, but you can't see any of like the sweat stains and you know, my brother-in-law like wiped his face multiple times during the ceremony and it looked like he was really nervous to be getting married, but it was just really hot. Anyway. Uh, Yes, so I, I think we all need to be reminded that, that we are loved as the beloved children of God. Um, and in that sense, my gender identity has fit into my call to ministry very naturally. Now, if you can forgive me, I have one more thing to share about trans Jewish things. It's something I found this summer right before I started hormone replacement therapy. I shared it in a sermon that I preached at the start of the school year to BGLAS, which is again the LGBTQ student group at Princeton. It's a blessing for transitioning genders. First, I'd like to read part of the intro. It says, this blessing takes the same form and grammatical structure as classical blessings that mark wondrous occasions. The transforming one as a name for God appears in the traditional blessings of gratitude that are recited each morning. The Hebrew verb root of this word, avar, has multiple layers of meaning within Judaism. Most literally, it means to physically cross over. However, it also implies spiritual transformation in High Holy Day prayers. It lies at the root of the word Ivrim, Hebrew people. We are the Ivrim, the crossing over people, because we physically crossed over the Jordan River to escape from slavery and oppression and spiritually transformed ourselves. At its core, our ancestral sacred memory holds this moment of painful and yet redemptive physical and spiritual transition, 
In modern Hebrew, the same root is used to form the word ma'avar, which means to transition genders. The second blessing is also taken from morning liturgy. It is based on the book of Genesis, which teaches that male and female bodies were equally created in God's image. The Midrash, classic Jewish exegesis, adds that the Adam HaRishon, the first human being formed in God's likeness, was an androgynous, an intersex person. And androgynous is one of those seven gender categories from the Talmud that I mentioned earlier. Hence, our tradition teaches that all bodies and genders are created in God's image, whether we identify as men, women, intersex, or something else. When we take physical or spiritual steps to more honestly manifest our gender identities, we are fulfilling the foundational mitzvah, religious commandment, to be partnered with God in creating, completing the work of creation. The first blessing may be recited before any moment in the transitioning process. Baruch Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaMavir Ovrim. Blessed are you, eternal one, our God, ruler of time and space, the transforming one to those who transform. The second blessing is Baruch Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Shasani B'Tselmo. Blessed are you, eternal one, our God, ruler of time and space, who has made me in God's image. I preached on Genesis 2. I said that God created us to complete the work of creation, to care for creation, to build the kingdom of God on earth. And Rabbi Kukla is right. When trans people take steps to more honestly manifest their gender identities, they are partnering with God in that most sacred act of completing the work of creation because they are making themselves more whole. When I preached this to Beeglass, I said that Rabbi Kukla's words are applicable to the entire LGBTQ community, to sexuality in addition to gender identity. But really, I think it's applicable to everyone. We all have things about ourselves that we've struggled with that we maybe wish was different. And there's definitely a difference between harmful habits that hurt us and others and things that aren't bad that we've still been made to feel shame for, whether the shame has come from society or those we love or ourselves. Those things that make us feel shame but shouldn't are the things I think we should work toward embracing. When we affirm the wholeness of who God created us to be and work to be the best version of who God created us to be, we are doing the holy, beautiful, necessary, work of completing creation. Living into the fullness of God's vision for us helps us to be better stewards of the world, better neighbors to each other, better followers of Christ. I'm trying to live into God's vision for me, or at least what I believe God's vision is for me. I never want to assume I know exactly what God thinks because that wouldn't be very UCC of me, but I'm trying. And that's really all that any of us can do. So thank you for listening to my story. All right. So I think we have time, about 10 minutes left over for So our questions. tradition here is that if you know people have other things planned, you have to leave, you can't just step over and get the microphone. So if you know you kind of people just sit and wait if they wish. So, what what's the thing you can tell us 
talk a little bit about um, your call to ministry. You, you had the one photograph, you know, that you kind of made fun of is like, yeah. yeah. And then, um, but just, you know, th that probably developed over a number of years. So I'm mm -hmm. just curious about that. Absolutely. Um, well, it, it's funny. I don't, I never really had a moment where I was like, oh, like, God, you know, split the heavens and it's like, you are being called to ministry. It was, it, it felt like a very natural progression for me. I remember my uh, senior year of high school, I started to get this feeling that I wanted to serve God with my life somehow, and I really had no idea what that was going to look like. And so I talked to Rich, and after I talked to Rich, Rich was like, have you ever talked to Catherine? Like, I feel like you guys have similarities in your story, and you might benefit from that. And I think it was the summer after graduation that I, I had a conversation with Catherine, and toward the end of the conversation, I remember her saying something like, this sounds like a call to ministry. And I probably like nodded along politely or something, but in my mind, I was like, there's no way. <laughs> like, I'm gonna be an English and French double major. I'm gonna be a writer and I'm gonna be fluent in French. And like, if only I had stuck with the French knowing that my sister was gonna marry a Frenchman. Like, oh. hindsight is, you know. Um, but anyway, toward the end of my first semester of college, uh, I had had, you know, really connected with a campus ministry there, a Methodist group, and was experiencing a lot of like theological drama where I, I had gone to a very conservative Christian high school and uh, went into college with many of those beliefs and a lot of my time in campus ministry was spent deconstructing that and returning to a much more uh, UCC theology. Um, but toward the end of that first semester, I was starting to think, you know, I'm really feeling pulled towards uh, studying religions and, and thinking about God more seriously theologically, and I kind of actually do want to look into this ministry thing. So I uh, emailed Catherine over that winter break, and, and we set up uh, a summer internship after my freshman year. So by the end of my freshman year of college, I had abandoned the English and French plans and had declared a religious studies major. And I interned at First Congo that summer in June and July. And I basically shadowed all of our wonderful ministers and got to know the, the staff and figure out you know, what the inner workings of a church like this looks like. And uh, basically everything just felt very natural and right. Um, not easy because it shouldn't be easy, but it felt right in, in a way that that's difficult to articulate beyond that. Um, and so by the end of that, I was pretty sure I'm interested in going to seminary at the very least. I, I do feel like I am discerning a call to ministry. And so I you know, finished my religious studies degree and I had my campus minister signing me up to preach without telling me beforehand and it went fine. Um, and getting to you know, practice planning worship and leading worship and stretching that call. Until finally I did a, a second internship at First Congo uh, after I graduated and then started seminary, and I've you know, taken so many classes since then that are just wonderful, uh, and a lot of Hebrew classes, because I'm very into Hebrew, if you couldn't tell, um, and doing several other field eds in the process. And basically, as I've gone through this path, which now feels like basically the past six years of my life, it has just felt more and more right, and I've just felt more and more affirmed in this path that, that congregational ministry is, is where God is calling me in my life. So. Um, it, I just, it just feels like I very naturally fell into this.
Thanks. First of all, I just want to thank you. I feel like I've learned more in the last 40 minutes than 10 years of sound bites and articles and everything. So I appreciate that um, and, your, and your journey. Um, I have uh, two questions. Actually, I have a thousand, but I'm going to try to narrow it down to two. Um, the first is um, I've heard that uh, trans uh, people that they, and I'm, I apologize if I don't use the correct mm -hmm. term, um, the, uh, that the, the name that they had previous to their transition is something that they're very like, I don't know, sensitive about or, or, or that it, it's maybe closely associated with their assigned gender. And if that's, if, if that's been your experience or that, that that's kind of something that, uh, that you've kind of shied away from. And then my second question I think is a little deeper, which is uh, as a non-trans person, mm -hmm. uh, 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 what, what would you say could be steps that we could take to try to help somebody who is not um, accepting or, or understanding of, um, let's say, trans people of faith, to say you, you can't. So, so I guess those are the two that I'll narrow down to right now. Yeah, that's, yeah. The first one is, is much easier to, to address. Um, so some trans people will like call their old name their, their dead name um, and react very strongly, uh, negatively to it. They can cause a lot of dysphoria. For me, I don't completely have that. It's like I don't like telling people my old name because I don't want, you know, I just want people to know me as Chase. Um, but like I, I kept my old initials and my, my name, uh, I was very fond of it because they were all family names and that's something that's been very meaningful to me. And if I had been assigned male at birth, I, I would have been Michael Charles Dose, which is my dad's name. Uh, and so since my initials were CMD and my birth name was the feminine version of Charles, uh, my full legal name is Charles Michael Dost. I just switched that. And so I've kept the, the family name part of that. So my new name is still very much anchored to my old name and that's meaningful to me because it's a part of my past. Um, now as for uh, helping people of faith who are unaffirming of trans people, I think I'm really of two minds about this. First, I would say, so my, my CPE experience, I had a cohort of six students. It was me, two Seventh-day Adventists, and three Catholic seminarians. Uh, and so I was very much the theological outlier, and it was very uh, nerve-wracking going into that. I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna come out to them, and I don't know if it's worth it. Like, they've already seen my birth name on, like, you know, enrollment stuff. Like, I don't know if it's worth it. And the very first day, our uh, supervisor was like, we're gonna do an icebreaker. We're gonna say how you got your name. I'm like, <laughs> I see what you're doing there, God. <laughs> like, okay, okay. Uh, so I was, you know, upfront about it from the beginning. And uh, as it actually turned out, one of the Catholic seminarians has some close friends who are LGBT, including trans friends. Um, and so uh, he was much more, uh, immediately accepting and respectful about it, and the others had very respectful questions that they asked. Uh, but it wasn't until the mid-unit evaluation halfway through the summer that a couple of them revealed how uncomfortable they were when I first came out. And they did not know what to think. They were actually afraid of me judging them for holding unaffirming views, and I was afraid of them being mean to me because they held unaffirming views. So like, there was a lot of like subtle distrust that had to be broken down over the summer. But by the end, uh, several of them said in their final evaluations that they had, that they were on a journey of new understanding of LGBT people, um, especially people of faith, uh, having known me over the summer. So I do think that there is power in 
being in relationship with people who, who believe differently from you and <sighs> being a consistent voice of faith who is affirming can be a very powerful thing. Like a lot of unaffirming people just haven't had a lot of exposure to affirming viewpoints. Um, but also at the same time, something that, that has happened in seminary with, with unaffirming viewpoints that I've, I've kind of come to a point of, I'm not really interested in you know, having debates about affirming theology anymore because of this, is that oftentimes uh, it comes down to how you view the Bible and biblical interpretation, is that for some people, uh, some people at my seminary who uh, believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, they really aren't open to me saying like, oh, well, if you look at the historical cultural context or like the translation of these words, it really seems to be referring to a totally different thing than sexuality or you know, gender identity. And for people who you know, believe that the Bible is, is completely the word of God, that argument doesn't really work. And so it really depends on how open the unaffirming people are to receiving a new word, basically. I don't know if that answers your question. It was kind of along the lines of, I want to say, is it worth it for some people? Because it's just going to be a debate, and, and that's not what we're looking for. Right. I was just going to say, it must be exhausting to always be the face of this and have to be constantly trying to educate. I mean, I really, really appreciate you doing it because, like you, I've, I thought I knew some, but that gingerbread what thing, mm -hmm. somebody shared with that with me, mm -hmm. and I wish you would share it because I think there's so many people that, it's not that they're not affirmed, they really don't understand. And mm -hmm. if you, if they could hear you, they mm -hmm. would understand. And um, so, thank you so much. Well, thank you. You know, it, it does get tiring sometimes, but like I said, it's like I've come to think of it as like a part of my ministry um, because I do think, especially after my CPE experience, that was very moving for me to hear that I had shifted some people literally just by being in relationship with them. Um, so, yeah. Well, I'd like to say I used to live nearby and have moved to Oak Park, which is a much more open community than some of the ones around here. And I work at the Oak Park Public Library, which is a very open place for trans people. Uh, we have several on staff. And it's not unusual to find that when emails bounce around between people in the library, below the name as a part of the, you know, whatever is sent out as an email, it says, my pronouns are. And that's below their name, and that goes to everybody. So yesterday when I was at work, I picked up these flyers. Um, transgender resource collection. The library in Oak Park has had for 10 years a collection of trans books. Any of them are available through SWAN, so you can go through your local library and request any of these books. I picked up a bunch of these flyers. They're over there. <coughs> Thank you. Yeah, I also, on the note of uh, sharing pronouns, like I do think that that's one thing that a lot of people can do that is very easy to normalize, talking about gender identity and sharing pronouns, uh, that can kind of take the onus off of trans people starting that conversation is just, you know, 
offering up your pronouns when you introduce yourself. And that, that can be a very scary thing to do, but, or say like at my field at church right now in Princeton, uh, we have name tags and underneath the name tags, uh, we have our pronouns listed. And so both trans and cis people do that. And that's a very easy way of just making it normal to talk about. Um, I'm gonna insert myself into this situation. Um, I just, it, it, it feels so important for you to know how, um, how much we love you and how much, um, how well we wish for you. And so if it's okay on our behalf, may I offer you a blessing? Because we know you're going, you're literally flying back to school today for your last semester. We're so grateful that you've been here. And so I just want to offer a, a prayer of thanksgiving and blessing on behalf of really everybody here, but your whole home church. Can I do that? I'll invite you, if you want to put your hand up, she said, um, pro you know, mainline Protestants aren't always <laughs> comfortable with like, you know, charismatic things, but I, I do. I want yeah. you to lift up your hand toward um, Chase and participate in this blessing. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for Chase, for the blessings you have poured into his life, for the blessings you've poured into our life because we know him. We pray that you would continue to journey with him, give him strength, give him peace, give him the courage to wash the dust off his feet and leave town and protect himself from those who cannot receive him, just as your son did in those towns that rejected him during his ministry. But most of all, God, we pray that he would continue to know his identity as a beloved child of God. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you.